Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship aimed to help clinicians apply a BPS approach to their clinical practice. We've got Lars Avamarie coming up live in person in Sydney and Melbourne, Sydney on the 8th and 9th of October and Melbourne on the 15th and 16th. So check it out at tkex.org slash Lars. At the very least, you can see me wear an amazingly gangster jumper in our promo video and it should be a great course diving into all things pain with the one and only Lars. So check it all out at our website or at our Facebook discussion group. So today, special guest for us all the way from the other side of the country, Merv Travers. He is a researcher, lecturer, an educator, SNC coach, physiotherapist, consultant. Uh, you're wearing too many hats, Merv. I'm very keen to dive into all things pain, and I can personally vouch for his company and his courses through Optimize Rehab. I took his advanced SNC course and pain course, and highly recommend all clinicians in the area and super keen to hear all about the future course dates as well for clinicians working with pain and also working with athletes in rehab. Merv, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for making the time. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be on. Mate, the infamous question, I hear someone from your neck of the woods asks it a fair bit. What's your story? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, look, you, you listed a lot of things there, which uh, I don't know if I can live up to to that billing. But uh, yeah, look, so I'm I'm a physio by training, so I, I trained in in Ireland. Uh, gosh, back in I think I finished about '05, and then came to Australia to do a postgrad at Curtin. So um, it was called the Master of Manipulative Therapy. Then now it's called uh, Musculoskeletal Physio. Kind of same thing arose by any other name, I suppose um and uh yeah i planned to be here for a year to do that and you know my my uh, master's led into doing a, a phd and then you know from there we you know I've, I've been uh spent some of that time working in professional rugby um and uh working in private practice and also lecturing teaching and researching and so um as it currently stands i i work at the university of notre dame uh, in Fremantle in the physio school there and I struggle fence with some teaching and research there and I have a adjunct research role in, in um, Curtin University at the physio school there so I've got PhD students across both and uh, yeah doing doing work in, in, in the area of pain and uh, yeah still still trying to see some patients uh, because I, I, I feel it lends some authenticity to, to what I'm doing to put my research in and to my to my teaching and, and look as you mentioned I'm, I'm very fortunate I get to Kind of fly around the world, uh, which is really nice, and 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 work with lots of clinicians, physios, exercise physiologists, SNC coaches, chiros, myotherapists, lots of different people um, in the areas of kind of exercise rehab and pain. So my big thing is trying to trying to merge those worlds, I suppose, trying to make sense of of, of those worlds. And uh, yeah, that's kind of that brought brought us whistle stop tour from professionally from 05 to twenty twenty two. So the last about seventeen years or so summed up there. Yeah, wow, that's awesome, and I really love how you combine so so smoothly and easily the the two worlds, the the kind of performance S and C worlds, as well as the the pain, perhaps more of the the chronic pain patient world, and, and see all the similarities and and um, all the overlaps 
it makes the the complexity just a lot more simple and easier for clinicians and coaches to understand and and like you said collaborate and work together in this space yeah look i think you're right collaboration is key because i think you know like snc coaches are magnificent at what they do like they're so good and, and, and all of my friends and colleagues who are snc coaches if you put them on, on the training field or in the gym with a group of you know elite athletes or emerging athletes or just a bunch of people starting first time they're probably all better coaches than i am you know they they, they do a better job because they're they got more authenticity more experience but but there's a limitation to the skill set that you know they're not trained to work with people in pain Okay. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I don't claim by any means to be the most knowledgeable or, or fantastic clinician out there. But one of the things that, um, you know, my experience is and, and, and knowing the curricula in a lot of places is that um, from an exercise rehabilitation point of view, um, you know, we almost deal with, you know, pain and exercise rehab as two kind of separate entities and kind of narrow the twain will mix. And that's problematic because if you're dealing with athletes or, or anyone who has pain and they want to improve their physical functioning, well, you got to be able to marry those worlds a little bit. Um, and, but then equally, you know, when you're rehabbing anyone and even if pain is not a huge issue, there's a point at which, you know, outside of the elite world, I find a lot of uh, patients would fall between the two stools because clinicians are really good at maybe the early rehab, getting someone moving to start with, you know, diagnosing their injury, dealing with that kind of stuff. And then the SSC coaches are really good at kind of, you know, kind of bringing someone towards the pointy end of performance. And then, but in the middle of the spectrum, I think that's where a lot of people kind of need service, I suppose. And I think that's where there's an enormous amount of kind of social good um, from our professions, if we have clinicians and SSC coaches, if they can kind of meet somewhere in the middle. And I suppose one way of doing that is having clinicians improve their exercise rehabilitation, kind of knowledge, competence, confidence, expertise, because they can have a, a longer runway. I mean, I still think, and very often for my patients, I'll still hand the baton over to an SSC coach. I think you've seen some examples I've, I've given where I've kind of gone, okay, well, I still, um, this person was lifting more than I could even have in the clinic. They, they needed to go on to someone else or, or whatever it might be, or, or, you know, I, I can't be on field with them all the time and do the things that our coaches can. And so um, there is a point where you hand that baton over. And I think it's about extending that runway, but not, 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 how should we say straying out of our lane too much. I think we got to like, it's about being collaborative. We're not trying to replace in any way, any one discipline. I think it's just about, you know, being the best we can be within our, um, you know, specific kind of domain. And the more we learn, it's the effect is the more we can understand where that point might be for a given athlete. We can really respect the limitations perhaps in our resources or the specific coaching needs of an athlete. So I, I think it's almost contradictory that the more that we learn about SNC, the more we know, okay, this is where, the, the line might be it's it's a lot clearer whereas if we didn't know then it's it can be quite gray and there, there can be times where we might be keeping someone in in a in a clinic environment where they should be already starting to be on that on the field environment yeah yeah it's true and it's funny you know and, and i'm not so being cautious with the statement because i'm not saying this is what would happen you know three days after having you know surgery of some kind for a sports injury but you know i look at i, I speak to one of my colleagues regularly who, who you met at the at the advanced course uh, brennan appleby from the from the um australian hockey team so he's the head snc there and, and he just has done a magnificent job with those athletes over the last number of years that I've, I've observed from the sidelines and um you know it's funny like he talks about how when he's doing his 
when athletes are handed over to him with his doing his side of rehab or if he's just doing the conditioning with the athletes his athletes you know he doesn't have them running in straight lines because they never run in straight lines on field. You know, he'll have them with a ball and a stick and doing things that are very game specific from, you know, the earliest possible time point. And so, you know, I look at that and I go, gosh, if I was the physio, how would I interface with that? Like if all of my running rehab was all straight line stuff, I'm like, okay, over to UBA, time to take over and do your S&C thing. Well, then I've not adequately prepared that athlete, you know, for the rehab and that's that would be a failure of communication on my side so it kind of brings back to what you said i really like what you said about you know you don't know what you don't know and it's about communication um with the athlete and with the other coaches so that whole kind of clinical sphere extends and that whole like that whole group of people that that surround that athlete and help them to be their their best is is, is we have to recognize our role within that and yeah, like you say, the limitations of knowledge and limitations of resources and, and just how we interface with the different uh, kind of services there. Yeah, I think that's it. It's learning more about it and bringing about it, approaching it with some humility to to know where that line might be and and maybe even appreciating the the specifics of an athlete's rehab program so we can then make that transition a lot smoother and, and the, the person in the middle, the, the star player, the athlete isn't stuck, like you said earlier, in, in that gap. And that's where we need to really work towards filling in that gap and making that transition a lot smoother. Yeah, I like what you say, though. I, I like the idea of kind of humility and clinical practice. I think, it's, I think it's so important. You know, we it's not what you it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you don't know that you're so sure of. Right. And, you, you know, that famous quote I think probably mistakenly attributed to Mark Twain, but the key thing is that you, you know, there's, there's, it's so easy to sit within our clinical spheres and not reach out and not reach out for help, you know, and, and we feel, you know, someone comes to you for help or guidance with an injury or pain or whatever it might be. And, you know, we, we seek to intervene and we seek to help and do our best for them. Um, but sometimes I think we have to raise our hand and go, gosh, am I the right person? Do I know enough about this world or what this person wants? Is there someone else? Can we build a team around this person? I know that requires, I suspect when I was younger, I probably didn't do that well enough and likely because of a lack of clinical confidence, I suspect, you know, uh, and, and insecurity as a younger clinician, I, I suspect. But but I suppose as I've gotten a bit more gray hair, uh, I'm just more and more willing to reach out and say, hey, is, you know, is, can you help me with this? Because this might be more in your wheelhouse. And I, as I found with doing that, people are enormously generous with their time and enormously generous with their knowledge. And, and the great thing is, like, I think three things come from it that are really useful. One, you probably get the best outcome for the patient, which is the most important thing. And two, you create a clinical uh, contact, you know, a person that you can go back and forth with, which share ideas with to re cross refer to. So it's beneficial. And then thirdly, you always learn something. And so, you know, I think that's that's really important. And I actually had it this week where I had a, a physio who's a clinical specialist. So that's very high up. And that's the highest in terms of our tiering. And they they reached out to me for, uh, you know, they're technically higher up the tiering than I am for 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 guidance on on, on injury and, and something that they maybe not really seen before and felt was within my wheelhouse. And I actually was like, oh, I think I have an idea about this, but, I, you know, I'm going to reach out to someone else here. And so it went multiple ways around the chain. And as it turned out, the person who contacted me had also tried to contact this person that I tried to, you know, and so the whole idea is, is, so now from that, all three of us ended up 
with degree of dialogue and I suspect would help manage that circumstance better, you know? And and I think that's that's the great thing. I think you gotta try and yeah, I think the idea of humility, you know, that that person who said to me, that physio is, you know, as I said, a clinical specialist, really high up in the, you know, as, as, as high up as it goes, really. Um, and it would have been easy for them to just sit back and go, well, you know, I'm a specialist, I'm pretty experienced, I've got this. And it takes more to be humble and go, hey, you know, hey, Murph, hey, Daniel, you've probably seen a couple of these. What do you reckon? And and then I'd go, oh, gosh, I'm going to I'm gonna kick this can over to my mate who I reckon knows more about this one than me and, and, and be humble enough to kind of share ideas in that way, I suppose. Yeah, and that, that was one of the things that struck me most from your course and both courses, the real lived examples, the cases going through your thought process and the uncertainty within that and the, seeing how uh, BA was able to coach and answer some of the questions of what do you do in this situation and um, showing where the the context can shape the answer and, and how, you know, the, the classic it depends or context matters is the 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 answer to everything but it's really cool to see some lived examples and how that might play out with that uncertainty that's very real in clinical practice yeah i mean look you're right like uncertainty is the name of the game right it, it really is it's like anything it's you know you hear people talk about hey i'm gonna rule out red flags and you know, well you've not ruled out red flags you you screen for an increased risk of serious pathology but but the risk may still remain you know i've i've, I've done those screen tests before you know, they've been clear and then I've had reason to pause later on and think of, you know what, we better check this. And it has been something that, you know, and so, so they, they're even in things that seem sometimes cut and dry in the way we, we go to our checklist of things, but they're not, it's, it's, it's all, um, it's, it's all one great big experiment and N equals one experiment with the person in front of you, I think, and, you know, as consenting adults, of course, uh, and benevolent, like well-meaning. So I don't mean that you just try anything, because you feel like it obviously it's, it should be intended to be for the best outcome for the patient but you know, there's just so much uncertainty you just you just don't you just don't know um what way that person's going to come in the next day i mean today i i reached out to a, a patient i've been working with who's in in denmark and i hadn't heard from him for a while uh, for a few weeks and he's kind of driving the bus on what he's doing because he's quite autonomous what he's doing at this point but i hadn't heard in a few weeks and i i kind of wanted to reach out uh, and say hey mate kind of give us an update where you're at and like you know waiting for that email to return i you know he, he could have been i'm the same i'm better i'm worse and there's absolutely no way i can predict that and i can't predict that based on his kind of trajectory he'd been on which had been improving but not necessarily smoothly because that never happens you know uh, and as a result as it turns out he, you know he emailed me going look i had a little flare-up but i managed it i'm back in the game you know and, and lovely like that's a, that's a great response but the reality is i can't predict that i don't know it's always uncertainty right and, and that's so uh, difficult, I imagine, for newer clinicians getting into the world of working with humans in all their complexity and um, some of the perhaps misconceptions and, and um, well, I guess, claims where there is some certainty when actually there might be, we can be less certain than we might think, maybe the differentiation between uh, acute pain versus chronic pain. And I'd love to dive into that. And um, it's it's not like, a human is suddenly um, classified and labeled as a chronic pain patient at the 12 week mark. And before that they were in an acute phase, but it does tend to perhaps um, lead that way. If we were to categorize and label people into neat boxes that are easy to treat. So how would you approach the, 
the acute versus uh, chronic pain and, and would they be treated so differently? What might be the factors involved in that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's also an enormous question, obviously. Um, look, first thing I'll reflect back on, like, I agree with you that, like, it's not like something, what, 12 weeks is the, is the, is the line we use in the sand for research purposes today, you've transitioned to being, you know, persisting or chronic or whatever term that we want to use, which is all about the timeline. And, you know, it's not as if something happens on like night 83 that the chronic pain fairy comes along, waves a magic wand and suddenly different physiological processes, you know, happen. And, and, and you know, you know, some of the kind of dichotomies you see people speaking about, um, you know, sometimes is, you know, suddenly it becomes, you know, this biopsychosocial entity because it's, you know, a persisting stain pain, pain state suddenly. But of course, of course it's, you know, pain is a I view pain as kind of a conscious experience and with that that's kind of a very kind of deeply personal experience which is wrapped up in that is is the person and their biology but that person lives in their world and so their social connectedness the psychological uh, factors all of those things are all kind of embedded within that and so there is relevant in you know two days you know into an injury as they are 12 weeks into an injury or or you know I it, it, it's really an individual presentation and um, there's people come to the table with you know great fears and, and because of the priors they have and the information they've been received both implicitly and explicitly um over the um you know over their lifetime so they might be their first episode of chronic or it might be their first episode of acute back pain and they might be two days deep but that still doesn't mean they won't say things or be thinking things like gosh you know, I've, I've heard that my, if you hurt your back, it never gets better, or I'm going to end up in a wheelchair, et cetera, et cetera. That, they're the same types of, of, of things that we often hear from, you know, as examples from chronic pain patients. But my experience at clinic is when you scratch deeply with these things on, on, on some people, but not all, you'll see and hear these legitimate fears, which are based upon their, their, their lived experience in their world, you know, the things they've seen, things they've heard. And, uh, and so I think, I think one of the things that's, if I was to, so I'm after saying in some ways, I think they're, they can be very similar, but I was to flip the script and say, in some ways they can be different. Um, you know, look, when, usually if someone's had pain for a long time, so the patients you see, you know, I've had pain for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, they've likely sought care previously. They've likely been told narratives that are kind of fairly pathological based. And so one of the problems or challenges that I face when I see those people is often trying to, you know, um, uh, turn that ship around, which can be a, a, a tough thing to do. Um, and so con contrasting that with acute pain, often you may have a opportunity to see the person to be the first point of contact. And so with that comes great responsibility in the words that we use and the, the narrative that we use and the way we explain, you know, pain, pathology, recovery, flare-ups, all of those things, because, you know, fortunately, a lot of people who have an acute episode of anything uh, will likely get better, okay, through natural history, and, that, and that's wonderful. And so that still doesn't give you free reign or license to kind of just say whatever you like, because let's say for example, you say, well, look, this acute pain is because your pelvis is out of place or something. Well, um, which I'm not endorsing, I'm saying that would be a, a statement that could said. Um, that person may get may well get better, but we're actually worries me as a clinician and as a researcher i think well, well the person gets better does that make that statement which is 
probably not causal of their pain. Uh, couldn't be tested if it could, you know, et cetera. You know, likely fear-inducing. Um, does that make it benign because they got better anyway? Or does that have a negative effect on the next pain event? And the next, because are they going to rock up in six months, a year later, two years later, whenever they may experience back pain again? Like, you know, it's because of that pelvis. You know, Daniel told me my pelvis on a place. It must be out of place again. And, you know, and, and you see from, you know, um, Mary O'Keefe and Josh Sadro, they've, they've published a couple of papers, I think, in, in, in the shoulder. And, and then, um, gosh, I think more recently in the back, uh, where uh, the, the terms used, like having a rotator cuff tear versus rotator cuff related pain or, or, or various different terms used in the back, the equivalents of the statements in the back, you know, they shaped people's care seeking or, or at least intentions for care, care seeking. You know, people were more inclined to want imaging, want to go down a surgical pathway depending on the label that's used. And so like sometimes they say with chronic or persisting pain, you're, you're thinking about needing to kind of in some ways uh, battle against or change some of those priors and some of the societal nesting and healthcare derived nesting that people have received. But in, in acute circumstance, you may well be that person who who plants that seed. And, you know that the per, a person in pain is fertile soil for for messaging about pain and recovery, etc. And so I think we need to be very conscious of of um, of the seeds we sow. So so I suppose to to answer your question. There are absolute parallels. Yeah, sure, things temporarily have changed and the likelihood of recovery, assuming all things being equal and acute pain state versus a chronic pain state is better. You know, there's the, you know, you look at the trajectories of, of back pain from um, uh, uh, Lucio Costa's work, uh, just 10 or 12 years old now, the, the, uh, um, the trajectory of pain is likely much better under usual care circumstances if you have an acute versus a chronic presentation. So there are, of course, differences, but nonetheless, it remains this deeply personal conscious experience, which is loaded with the person's priors and their, you know, the world they live in. It's not just this sensory thing, you know? Yeah, I love that. It's it's putting the the whole person into in in perspective. It's uh, respecting tissue healing times and uh, traumatic, acute kind of emergency room situations that might be a bit different to a private clinic situation where someone's had pain for 15 years, but there's still that that human involved in it. And we can't really say that there is a clear protocol or recipe for someone's uh, pain, whether it be acute or chronic. Yeah, look, look, you're right. I think, you know, it's so it seems so cliche to say, well, we don't treat pain, we treat humans type of thing. But I think in, in reality, you know, it's it's funny for me and 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 look, acknowledging that Mick Thacker and, and has been a great influence of mine in this respect, but but other people uh, as well, Ben Wand and Lorimer um, would probably uh, and, and Tasha Stanton and, and just wonderful people who, who who whose work I've read over the years, I get the feeling from all of this work and 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 that you know in some ways. And I don't know how you fit all this in our curricula, right? Because otherwise, our undergrad degrees become eleven years long. You know, we could probably go a long way as clinicians, spending more time. You're sure, certainly learning about pain, but but more time learning about society and people and 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 you know consciousness and the world and and you know and the social kind of determinants of healthcare and health outcomes and self health decisions and 
all of those things above and beyond the um some of the nitty-gritty and minute things that we that we work we look at and, and i suppose that it's it, like i'm not i'm not disparaging of that stuff in any way like i i teach an undergrad um uh pain neurobiology kind of course a unit if you will in the university here i i think that's really important i just wish we had more time to deep dig deep into kind of people and what makes people tick because ultimately it's going to be a person who comes in and sits in front of you and says this is me this is my world this is my experience and, and i have pain and, and and the thing is then you have to be able to listen to them uh, about themselves and their world and their experiences and their pain because i just don't see how you can funnel your attention and efforts and down just the pain road and think that uh, uh we, you know, with blinkers on to the, the wider person I just, and their world i just don't i just don't see how it works that's right so i feel like i'm still in a degree i'm still like in the student mode when learning about the way uh humans behave and and why they do what they do and philosophy sociology and how culture can influence everyone's experience i think maybe maybe this should be normalized and i know if i had an educator like you a lecturer like you that i'd, I'd be um super stoked and and be very inspired to keep uh keep learning but i feel like maybe for the students and the new grads out there to to know that that's an ongoing process to keep studying and and not just pain specifically not just musculoskeletal injuries but but humans in general to then reflect on the bigger picture yeah but yeah look well firstly you, you, thank you for a lovely compliment but I, I never said i'd do it very well that's for sure and i certainly don't have enough I, as i said I, i'd love to have the students for 11 years to work on that stuff but that's just not how it works the um and so look it is it, it's a journey it is a, definitely a journey and you know i look back on some of the things i've said or done in clinic over the years you almost feel like you you want to ring that person up and go look you saw me in october 2007 and I kind of wish I'd done better, right? You know, but 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 the reality is that journey doesn't have to be always. It's not always formal study, right? You're on that journey if you've got open ears in clinic every day, you know, that, and that and you're because you're interacting with people and it is an experiment. And and if you're open to that learning, um, I think there's a lot to be taken from every encounter. Absolutely, I, th I think that's a great point that we can reflect on um, and and learn from the people that we we help a lot more than we might think yeah yeah i think you know it's, it's a really important question that I, I try and ask uh i couldn't say i ask everyone i see but i certainly try and include it a lot of, i kind of actually try I, when people, if people are doing better and they're improving kind of what what do you think made the difference for you what what seemed to work for you and it's so often not what i it's so often not the seed that i think i've sown you know and that's that's what's that's what's really interesting for me, you know, and I can think of, I can think of um, an example recently where I asked, uh, and it was someone I was working with who had back pain for over 20 years and they were doing really well. They were kind of, you know, pain free and, and back playing some social sport and, and doing some stuff, you know, re-engaging with their world. And, and it was, it was lovely. You know, you know, they're the great success stories. Of course, I'm not telling you about the ones that were, that were unsuccessful, of course, and there are plenty of those. Um, but I remember asking, you know, you know, we, we'd spoken about, uh, various aspects of pain and done some trying to do some experiential learning stuff and reflecting on it and doing all these things that you know so i thought you know if i asked you know what's what's made a difference uh you know uh, and he'd had some flare-ups he'd managed manage them independently all this kind of stuff you know so i'm thinking you know 
he's going to say I've, I've disavowed his kind of beliefs around structural pathology or, um, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of helped him realize that pain isn't necessarily just this entity in the, you know, to do with the tissues and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, he's going to give me this really kind of, you know, really, I almost thought like he's going to reflect back to me like some kind of, like I'd ask my students, you know, tell me about, a, you know, biopsychosocial aspects of pain or whatever else. Like, I thought he's going to kind of reflect that back to me. Uh, and he kind of said how he felt that I gave him a gym program that had real structure and targeted areas of um, um, uh, areas of his training that he kind of neglected over the years sort of thing. I, I mean, you know, it's it's so funny, like for me, so he's someone who I had, yeah, I, I had worked, we'd done some movement experimentation, done a lot of exercise and movement and just, you know, declaring my bias, I'll always probably try and move someone more than I'll try and do manual therapy stuff with them. And that's in part because most of the patients I see these days are online because a lot of them are all over the world. But also, it, you know, it's my own clinical bias, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm an exercise guy and I recognize that. Um, uh, and, and we can delve into the, the wherefores and whitefores of that if you like. But, but, but what was really interesting for me, we, we did all that. We, we, we played around with, with different various movements, with precision of movements, with kind of loading them in lots of different ways and, and, and seeing how it worked. All around trying to kind of help him understand that he was okay to move and experience that and feel like he could do it and then explore lots of different movements and, and open his movement repertoire. But but the interesting thing for him is he like you know it was all grounded in this idea of 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 um you know experiential learning through pain and, and kind of learning and exploring himself etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, you know and for him it was like it was you know, it's all about the pounds and the kilos and the you know the 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 you targeted the exercise in this direction that I hadn't done previously I, I, you know and that's the thing like we think that you know you almost feel like sometimes after a clinical encounter you drop the microphone I've nailed it but if you ask the person reflect back and I think it's the Kieran O'Sullivan test you know to to reference a, a famous Irish uh physio uh, as famous as one could be as a physio of course um that uh you know he he, he kind of uh, I think he asked people you know when you go home today what are you going to tell you know your family member or whatever about this console well likewise you know i kind of go well, what do you think made the difference and so often what i hear back is not at all what i think is the kind of therapeutic target of my exercise or this or whatever else but it's what's resonated with that person and, and you know is what's wrong with that but that also means i learn a, a lot from that too i love that it's um it's amazing and surprising what our clients find most valuable and, and most helpful, even though we might think it might be something else. So maybe there's a, uh, back to that humility point that we need to acknowledge that there's a lot of other things involved in someone's experience than a 30 minute, one hour consult with us as well. Yeah. And actually, you know, it's funny, Dan, I kind of thinking about that and that example, I just told you, if I can, if I can give another example, um, because it speaks to this idea of planting seeds as well, that, um, uh, it, I had a, a patient I was working with, a lovely fellow over over many years. He, he was a rugby player and he'd had, um, you know, developed persisting pain after an injury. And um, we'd been working together and, you know, he, again, after five years of pain, he was back running, back lifting weights, you know, re-engaging with the world and doing things he wanted to without pain. And so you call it this great success story. And and like I I'd sent him off to kind of then work with a an SSC coach that I knew because he'd gone past where I could bring him to, I felt and he was pain free and he was, you know, lifting great big heavy things beyond which I had the 
capacity to coach and, and time and resources to coach them and, and and so it's like okay i'll hand you over and, and you know off you go and um and that was great and then he 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 messaged me saying hey listen i've i've done something to to my foot can i come in and see you and at the time if i recall um it was during uh a really really heavy period for me in the uni and i wasn't uh i, I just didn't have any capacity to see him and i said listen look i, I i've got no time to see it right now but you know who i recommend this person so i recommended my my friend and colleague james devon who's also a lecturer at the university of Notre Dame, and and he's you know he knows way more about you know the foot and ankle than i ever will just fact right just how it is and so i said look i'd, I'd like you to see him a because i'm not available right now and i don't really have to wait around and and b because james knows more about this stuff than me anyway and i'll have a chat to him about the previous stuff so he's up to speed and you know and he'll be able to bounce ideas off me and so in some ways you kind of get the two for one special because we you've got two heads on this he's like yeah no worries and and, and then i, I actually get, end up as i often do you know patients will send me emails and update where they're at and various different things and uh he's like oh i should update you on my foot and again i asked him like what made what went well what didn't go well you know what made a difference for you do you think and he actually said something that was really interesting to me. He he said that James said some stuff that was really similar to stuff I had told him about his knee pain, about, about flare-ups, about kind of the meaning of pain, and tried and did some stuff with him that really paralleled what I had done. It was like the foot version of what I had done for his knee, if you will. Not that we operate off the same templates or anything like that, just, you know, probably have similar-ish perspectives on pain and stuff. And um, he said, actually, that was he goes that was really helpful because he goes he goes I immediately trusted him and bought into what he was saying because it paralleled what I had said. But then it also reinforced for him the stuff that I had said about his knee because he was then hearing this from another clinician, right? And I suppose that's what I'm saying about this kind of idea of planting seeds. So even though he was a patient with persisting pain, each individual. Um, consult if it was acute pain you know what seeds are you planting for that person around their kind of sense of structural fragility uh you know meaning the meaning of pain etc and so whilst we can say that you know low value care and maybe some loose and inappropriate uh, messaging you know it, it, it i i firmly believe it's probably harmful for people um i also think that you know the reverse of that is probably a good thing like some some you know positive reassurance and, and information that's useful and relevant and on point uh you know from multiple clinicians along one's trajectory can also have a reinforcing effect but in this way a, a positive one absolutely it's so um easy to get caught up in the the negatives and the the harmful effects of one um you know unhelpful interaction and then forget the power that we can have over someone's trajectory long-term, not only um, in their current pain experience or injury, that, but future ones as well. And how that collaborative approach that we talked about earlier can, can reinforce that for someone and then change their intentions towards future care seeking behaviors. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Not, the individual, individual, um, uh, clinical encounters aren't aren't silos. They're kind of nodes on a trajectory, aren't they? So, um, you have to look at it that way. Mm, and super curious. This this question often comes up um, in our circles, and when trying to make sense of 
diagnoses and, and protocols and, and prognoses and, and how to treat certain conditions. Um, so I might be circling back a little bit um, on this, but if, if we're looking at uh, pain through a certain area of the body, say back pain versus shoulder pain versus neck pain, hip, knee, um, are there some nuances, different approaches? It's a similar question to the, the acute versus chronic and take this where you want. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I give. I, I spoke at a conference um, uh, maybe a month or two ago, and I gave a talk on kind of kind of pain through a predictive processing lens, which is a kind of a rabbit hole that I've kind of tumbled down over the last four or five years, and uh, and, and really enjoyed and, and learned and grown a lot from. Um, and it was, I kind of the all the examples I used were back pain examples. Um, and uh because i was trying to keep a consistent narrative and actually it was the first question that was asked of me it was a, a really nice and really well informed um kind of uh sports doc in the audience and and, and i know her uh clinically and 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 she, i and i wonder if she asked this question as much for for the audience as rather than for her own kind of not i suspect she knows the answer but her first question was that that was look all these principles all the stuff that you kind of suggested this kind of pathway that you suggested etc does that apply for other parts of the body? And, and, and like, yeah, like I think so. I think there are there are there are certain nuances around, um, you know, individual uh, uh, body parts in terms of like they, they have different planes of movements and different actions. So the way you rehab them will be ever so slightly different, right? Yeah, fair enough. You know, you if you're if you're working with someone with a hand and wrist injury, you're going to do more kind of gripping than with someone with a foot because you don't grip, you do more springing, you know, etc. So there are some nuances around that, of course, and there are different specific pathologies one might need to kind of, you know, screen for risk factors for, of course, right? And so all of those things, there are pathological factors that are relevant, um, but but nonetheless, the, the, the kind of broader perspective that I would take that, you know, for me, looking at pain as a conscious experience and considering that it's a, you know, that your priors are pre-held kind of information or, predictions largely which are you know subconscious in your system shape your conscious experiences as much as the incoming sensory information uh then then i think that like that holds true irrespective of whether it's a foot injury or a um ankle injury or knee injury or hip injury i mean there are nuances of course you get into kind of neuropathic pain and, and, and there are different processes involved but 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 nonetheless um you know the body part per se doesn't necessarily um uh, you know hold sway on the kind of pain experience although i think i think the meaningfulness of it does i think you know in some ways like I've never, I've never heard a patient, you know, sprain their ankle and say, I've heard if you sprain your ankle, you'll, you'll end up in a wheelchair, you know, and, and, and you know, this is ha having said that for what it's worth, that scan that I said that I got contacted about that patient I said I got contacted about this week was because there was a radiology report um, that, that had said something pretty, uh, they were floral in their description of the pathology, which you know, which kind of made the, I think the patient and certainly the clinician go, Ooh, gosh, I need to reach out here and just make sure this is okay. There were descriptors in there, which are probably accurate, but probably don't need to be said and, and, and maybe not helpful. And so, so, so like information that's can probably have the same kind of effect as, you know, a scan that 
you know, or telling someone they've got the, you know, telling a 25 year old they've got the back of a 90 year old or whatever it might be. But, but, but nonetheless, I think people do come to the table with pre held um, beliefs around injuries and, and pathology in certain body parts, et cetera, because of things they see on TV, you know, ads they see and hear for, for drugs and various different things and, 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 you know, what they've seen and heard around them from other people and from clinicians. So I, I think, in some ways, I say, look, I, I don't think it's it's relevant, but I think what you have is the person. I, I, I think the body part is relevant, but the person is, and the person's going to come with their own priors around that body part and what the pain there might mean. And so, yeah, maybe there is something there. It's such a great point. It's um, so almost the the opposite is is not necessarily true. Where you know the extreme end of this is anatomy doesn't matter and, and pathologies are, are irrelevant. It's we're still taking all of that into account and all prior knowledge. And then it's also the, the meaning of that body part for this particular person. I imagine a finger injury for a musician would be catastrophic compared to a finger yeah. injury for someone who doesn't use their hand as much in their day-to-day job. Yeah. If you, I mean, if you were a concert pianist and you had a mallet finger suddenly, that would that would raise the, you know your alarm much more I would think than for um you know for someone else right uh, you know and so I, I think that's a, I think it's a really good point um um yeah what what you raise and and, and I wonder also like I wonder if I, I again give an example I've often I've often used this example is um but it's one that's just you know we 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 go to our available resources um but a, a patient who I remember working with a number of years ago who'd developed persisting post-surgical pain. So had an ACL repair, but developed post-surgical pain that hung around for four or five years and really kind of, uh, as pain can, really shrunk this person's life and the the, the kind of affordances of their world. And, um, you know, I, I remember... So so he he went and had his uh, ACL repair, developed post-surgical pain, couldn't run, couldn't play sports, couldn't play with his kids, you know, ongoing daily pain, swelling, crepitus in the knee, kind of went to see a surgeon. Um, the surgeon did the only honorable thing, which was to go back in there, there with a scope again, and and you know, woke him up from the surgery and put a big picture of his knee that you know showed you've got grade four generation here. This there was a flap of cartilage here that was so loose I didn't even want to touch it you know told him all these nasty things described it gave him a picture of it told him to lose weight um he was going to get a knee replacement knee replacement before he was 25 and try not to use your leg too much I'm like what kind of advice is that like try not to use your leg how do I not use my leg much like because do I do I stand like a flamingo on one leg to a you know, like, let's be clear. So, so anyway, so he came to me um, and kind of said, listen, is, can you help me? Cause I, I don't have that knee replacement. And I said, yeah, fair enough. I'd, I'd like for you not to have it too, if I can help in any way. And, and, and what was really interesting for me was that um, uh, when I went to do some clinical testing, so some physical tests, I, you know, in my objective examination, I was going to pull on his knee and I'd have a feel of his kind of the ligaments of his knee, if you will, like notwithstanding the the low sensitivity and specificity of those those tests um i remember that patient was and this is what kind of strikes me so much with it is like he had a proper real deal kind of uh fear response 
like he was he was lying down he was on the bed he was sweating i mean sweating buckets like gripping the bed like white knuckles like he was on a roller coaster or something right and 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 i said hey man are you okay he's like well look no because you're gonna pull on my knee now and i've been there before and the last time someone pulled on my knee it kind of like you know i found out my acl was busted when i had the surgery it kind of in some ways kind of you know had a very negative effect on his life so he was very understandably nervous about it and so the the reason why this example i'm going to say next resonates me you were saying about the interface of anatomy and pathology and pain and and the person well i think hopefully this exemplifies that so i sat him up and i said listen sit up there and i'm gonna i'm gonna pull on this opposite knee here and show you what i'm gonna do so you can feel it and then i'm gonna go over here and i, I went over to the kind of if you will the, the the leg that was sore or that he was having his pain and 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 you know i did something very very gently just to kind of build his confidence is that okay the cool went over to your leg pulled really hard and then i built up the pressure on this leg and you know there's a nice firm end feel i'm dense can you see that that end feel can you see how it comes to a stop that's what we're looking for in this test we're lo looking at this test what would have happened last time if that knee would have just kept on going but this one's coming to a good stop can you compare it to this opposite one kind of demonstrating to him that you know this knee is as, in this position is as good as strong as 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 the other knee, right? And like you know, uh, you you know, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm a I'm a larger person. I'm over 100 kilos kind of weight, so I'm here pulling and dragging on this knee like pretty hard. And he's kind of and reflecting it back and comparing it to the opposite leg. He can see it, so he's got some kind of reassurance that his leg hasn't fallen off. Kind of get him to dial into that sense that there's a an an end feel, etc. And trying to help him understand that, like actually structurally, his knee is probably just as stable if you will as the other leg and and you know like is that my question is is that assessment is that treatment is it manual therapy is it pain education right is it experiential learning you know maybe it's all those things right and but but it for me it kind of demonstrates that the anatomy and understanding of anatomy pathology clinical testing still has a place and role interfaces here because he knows very well what that test means and so I can't just say to him, hey, mate, lots of people have knees that look like this. They're not all sore. You'll be good. Right. He's not going to that's not going to shift his kind of pre-held beliefs around his knee, about his, the frailty, fragility of his knee, et cetera. It's not people don't learn kind of true social suggestion like that. I don't think you can Jedi mind trick them. You know, these aren't the drones you're looking for. This is your, your knees going to be all cool, mate. The key thing here is that is that you know, using his knowledge of it, but also my knowledge of the pathology and anatomy, using that, that clinical test, which is kind of has a foundation of anatomy and pathology um, to kind of influence this person's experience of, in both in terms of pain and their understanding of their knee and what kind of forces and stresses it can take. And I did the same for other kind of clinical tests and walked him through the process to help him experience, understand that, you know, his knees may be actually better than he was told or that he thought or the images that he'd seen suggested. And like, lo and behold, you know, 30 minutes later, we're in the gym and we're trying to find some exercise that he can do pain-free. And it's an, exper it's an experiment, as I said, and we're playing around it. But I'm not so sure I'm able to get him in the gym 20, 30 minutes later if I don't go through that process, right? Of And that process requires an understanding of pain, it requires an understanding of people, and requires understanding of anatomy and pathology. And so, like you're saying, there's different end of the spectrum that says pathology and anatomy doesn't matter. We should cut it out. I, I think I I think that's wrong. 
um, because I think it can be leveraged. I think it's important in terms of screening for specific pathologies, but I also think that knowledge can be leveraged in the way we go about both our kind of assessment and, and treatment. And, and the longer I do this, I, I kind of find it harder to disentangle what is really assessment and what is really treatment, to be honest. Absolutely. The the entire process may be framed as either or as the assessment and the, the treatment. And the, the more that I guess that we know about our anatomy, the, the more we can understand how adaptable and robust the human body can be. And, and if we can communicate that in a clear way through the embodiedness and through through manual orthopedic tests, through exercise, through whatever interventions, the, the better for the person that they can actually get that embodied reassurance as opposed to the just the explicit verbal reassurance yeah look i i kind of feel with verbal stuff like i i feel that negative verbal stuff could be harmful i'm not so sure positive verbal stuff can turn it around you know i think i think that turning that ship around needs to be experiential because it's very if someone said look the last thirty thousand times i've been forward it's hurt my back and you go it's not your discs mate you'll be cool i'm just not so sure that that can is going to have the same capacity to influence their kind of internal models or whatever whatever even just pain experience or conscious beliefs by pain whatever kind of model of understanding pain that you subscribe to i'm not so sure that ship can get turned around through social suggestion you know we probably all had those one or two patients where you talk about that stuff and it resonates with them and they get up and they you know and it makes a big difference and that's great and i think it's a really important component of what we do i just don't think it's a conversation that you have to have up front and explicitly it's it's not a neurobiology lesson i think that's that's um i think the neurobiology that we learn in university or in various places underpins our understanding and is really important and underpins what we do it's just not a lesson that we then transfer on you know i think i don't i i, I don't need my patients to know about glutamate and nmda receptors or whatever you know yeah otherwise i mean clinicians would be pain-free right yeah well, we knew what we knew yeah it's funny i have I've a colleague and, and a good good colleague and friend here um uh, damien Olbeto, who's a, a wonderful physio and he he actually owns the clinic that i work at and so he, he kind of lets me come and go over the years and it's go more than come over the last few years i've been so busy and he's been kind and patient enough to kind of give me that license um, but Damien's got a, a wonderful saying, uh, you know, that the plumber's tap always leaks. And I, I think, I think that's very, very true in the case of, um, uh, you know, for, for clinicians, and, you know, I, I, you know, being a physio, I, I've, I've seen lots of physios have come to me as patients and, and it's so like several of them have, have kind of, uh, expressed that kind of feeling that, you know, gosh, I should be able to figure this out myself, or I should be able to, you know, I shouldn't get sore, right? Like, you know, I should be able to talk or think my way around uh, my pain. And of course, that's not how it works. And they know that, but it's just a pressure we impose on ourselves, right? So true. I, I can definitely resonate uh, professionally and personally with that statement. If, if only, you know, we knew that pain doesn't mean damage. That means that you know, we can reduce our entire, you know, uh, presentation and experience and shape it with one word or one bit of self-talk. That's all we need. Yeah, but it, like it's interesting. I I remember I remember um my my wife having had um several surgeries over the last couple of years, and her talking about how she ends up taking an awful lot less pain medication than she would have previously doing that. She she's had some of the surgeries previously, 
and 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 also like her actually sitting in in, in hospital and and the doctors and nurses trying to impose upon her much more analgesia and much stronger stuff than she kind of really wants or, or even she's like look my pain's probably a one out of ten i probably don't need tramadol um i i only took two paracetamol yesterday and i was cool uh, and they're trying to push opiates and all sorts of things on her right and so and, and i think her uh kind of her understanding that she's come to and she's kind of said this consciously to me uh or, or explicitly to me several times is like understanding that you know you know it's not all about damage and that you know i'm going to heal and i'm going to be fine all those things she's felt has, has really helped her in that respect but you know you never have a control so i think um like i don't under i wouldn't underestimate the value and power of, of understanding you know um certain aspects around pain and, and pain as a conscious experience I, I don't see i don't seek to devalue that i just don't think that alone is probably an adequate tweet, treatment for a lot of people yeah, um, yeah. My, my theory goes if there's a prior experience that would be stronger yeah. than, than the verbal reassurance, but maybe this is more of a public health literacy with pain science. Yeah. Yeah. Look at it. It's, it's tricky, man. Like it, it's like messages about pain are, they're just everywhere. Right. And, and messages that the spine in particular is fragile absolutely everywhere right like all the manual handling courses we're told to do like you know I, i've had these conversations with people and they're like that's ridiculous i just did my manual handling course at work so you're telling me that they were wrong like my company spent tens of thousands of dollars to have these people come and teach everyone all this stuff like seriously mate like you're crazy and and and, and what the manual handling people told me actually you know resonated with and aligned with everything I've seen on TV and everything I've heard and the manual handling I did in my previous job. And like, like you say, it's, it's that weight of information, right. That holds real sway and probably holds like, if you want to get predictive processing, it probably has great precision for them. Um, and so, so trying to turn that around is probably uh, with just information. Uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And there's this, uh, term within more of a contextual behavioral sciences called coherence so when for instance a clinician applies a particular approach and um but the narrative is promoting something different i think there's a there's that incoherence so the the, the yeah. person receiving that treatment might be a bit confused or they might leave with hang on they, they did this to me but they said i'm i'm fine or or vice versa and there's yeah, yeah. the the kind of I guess uh, misconstrued or, or misunderstood concept of our narratives are very, very important. I also wonder if there are also implicit meanings within the our approach, the interventions, there's the assessment, the context of our consultations, and and what that impact might be for for patients with pain. What what are your thoughts there on on the the value and the importance of both the the explicit narratives and the our approach as well as also us our the the meaning that we shape our context our uh, our marketing all these other things that come along yeah. our our intervention I, I can imagine a if i was to uh, paint a picture with, a, with an extreme example a surgeon saying that someone's pain is okay and they'll be fine and then they're proceeding to to do an incision and, and perform an invasive procedure there's a huge incoherence in, in that intervention versus yeah. the narrative. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, look, I think, um, 
so uh, you know tell me if i let me know if i kind of drift off point and i'm not necessarily kind of along the line that you were kind of expressing but you know one of the things that i've seen um so often in clinic and experience and 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 and, and you see this a, a lot actually is is someone um so someone seeks care and they come to whomever they see and that person says i'm going to do a subjective history and i've just ticked the subjective history box and now i'm going to do an objective examination i tick that box because they're you know they they become these siloed entities right and then I'm gonna then I'm gonna talk to you about pain. I'm gonna tell you about your diagnosis and talk to you about pain. And I'm gonna reassure you. And then I'm gonna treat you, right? And I'm not as I said earlier with the example I gave with the knee. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to things being in that kind of linear sequence of ways. But that you know you see it that way. And I think it lends to this issue is that so then the person has spent I don't know five ten minutes explaining to the person various aspects of pain and how it's not about their discs or this that and the other and there'll be you know lots of people have disc bulges and you get scans and lots of people have them and even if you've got a prolapse they resorb right and blah 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 and and that's cool because I'm trying to disavow structural fragility uh, or, or or thoughts of kind of structural threat and fragility and pain and that's cool and then what we're going to do is we're going to bring you to the gym and I'm going to get you exercising. All right. And then they get them to their, like, make sure you keep your back straight. Right. And so, you know, it may be not be as explicit as mind your discs, which you also hear. Right. But the key thing is that, you know, is there a dissonance created? Like you, you've literally just said, mate, you're all cool. Your discs are sweet. And then next you're saying, listen, keep your back straight to mind your discs with the exercise or, or even then, you know, the person may express something like, you know, I, I've been told my back is crumbling. And then you've decided to get them to do an exercise like deadlifting or something like there's a de there's a distance there because if they're kind of shaping up to try and do a deadlift, you know, highly fearful with this image in their mind of a crumbling spine and all those types of things. Like, I'm not so sure that we've um, kind of created a coherent kind of connection between our information, our messaging, their pathway forward. And most importantly, what the person has brought to the table in terms of their information um, and their history and their fears and their worries and their concerns. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's kind of what you're what you're angling at, but for me, I I see that often. I think I think it's I think it's problematic. And that's where I think that, you know, having a really deep understanding or trying to develop as best you can a deep understanding um of that person and their experience and their worries and their fears and what's happened in the past and what they've been told you know is so important because you i just don't see how you can create a a kind of coherent narrative um uh, for that journey and and they, i'm talking about creating a deep kind of understanding of that person so that involves what you bring to the table your openness you know your willingness to take on board what they're saying your kind of um, uh, the environment you're in, like the time you have to do that, because that can't be done in 15 minutes, right? The hurry that you're in, the stress you're under that day, the all of those things, right? Like it's it's a, it's a, um, um, Carl Friston, who, 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 who's, you know, kind of, if you will, behind a lot of this predictive processing stuff and, and kind of active inference, et cetera, and all coming from a lot of his work, I wrote this lovely paper called a duet for one and it's about kind of modeling kind of communication how that works and and um and I, the title in its own right kind of i think in some ways is, is so floral and kind of gives a great picture of duet for one um but how it is that's this interaction and how you can't 
you can't act and perceive at the same time, right? So if you if you need to perceive, you can't be thinking about what you're going to do. You can't be talking. You can't be doing something else. You have to be. You want to hear. You have to listen. Um, but I think so. All of that, you know, is is part of you as a clinician. What you bring to the table and the environment you're in, and 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 then the person brings all of their kind of needs, desires what reason they've come for treatment etc and so i think i think it's really easy to slip into um kind of dissonance with kind of our narrative and our treatment approaches but also by not being open to what the person has to say or or not exploring it in the first place yeah i love that it's um if they come in with language we can use that language and speak their language and then meet them where they're at rather than um, immediately dismiss that or or the other approach that I see where there is that dissonance is if they're coming in, perhaps um, requesting more of a collaborative approach and mentioning in their story that they've um, had a, uh, been dismissed by previous healthcare professionals. And then we, we listen to them in the subjective, in the quote unquote, the subjective portion. And then the objective component where we're almost like a paternalistic approach, we've switched on a different cap and we're, um, more d- demanding, commanding them to do certain exercise in specific ways. It, there's there's a it is a huge disconnect and and awareness of that. I think is the first step. Where I've personally made that mistake. Where you can apply a biopsychosocial, holistic, um, person centered approach in for some injuries, some conditions, but not others. You know, Daniel, I can tell you some stuff. By no means everything about the neurobiology of pain, but I can tell you nothing about that person's experience of pain. Simple, right? I can tell you nothing about it. So I have to listen to them with some of that pre-held information about stuff, and that's cool, but I can tell you nothing about what they're going through and what they want and why they've walked in the door when I'm talking. And it's that it's that humility that really helps it almost a baseline assumption of we don't know. Mm. And I think that's quite difficult for, for newer clinicians out there when we've been taught some certainty, there's black or white, the exams, the assessments that we have in university for the most part are assuming that there is an answer and that there is a right and a wrong. And I think there's uh, certain limitations within that context. But then when we get to the uh, actual real life practice, that uncertainty just doesn't really sit well with us. So that's some of the barriers that I see perhaps more in the the new grads coming out and um, ha- not having the yet the, the experience with dealing with the discomfort of not knowing what, what are some of the challenges that you see based on your education and um, your courses and your teachings with applying this approach and being more comfortable with that uncertainty. Yeah, look, I mean, I think you've, you've hit a very important point with it is that we do teach things in so many ways, almost like a recipe and almost like templated, you know, kind of ways. And there's reasons for that, right? Because I think, you know, it's, it's, it is a useful tool to get started. And I think, I think people have to recognize that being a clinician is a journey and, and you do learn with every encounter and you get hopefully better over time. And I, you know, as I say, I, I'm, 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 um, I look back at, at, at things I've done and said in the past and kind of, you know, 
this part of it goes, gosh, I, I wish I could just go back and do that again. And then I recognize, okay, look, that's part of my journey and hopefully I've learned from that and I've done better for the next person. Um, and so I, I think, I think there was an element of experience of it, experience and being reflective. And I think, I think with that, I think it's really important for like junior clinicians, younger clinicians to find themselves in supportive environments and, and, and have mentors and people who, who help them along the way, help them reflect on the cases they see and, um, and also help them embrace that kind of that uncertainty and that complexity. Um, and I think that 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 only comes with time and, and practice and reflection and guidance as well, you know, perhaps. Um, and so I think that that's like, I think that's probably the biggest thing is what, what you meant there is, is, is um, I suppose is also, uh, the other thing is the openness, being open to learn, you know, kind of, you know, people get tribal as clinicians, like I'm a McKenzie clinician. No, I'm not being disparaging about I'm a Pilates-based clinician. I'm a Calton-born clinician. I'm a, a whatever, right? You know what I mean? And they get tribal and they get in, into particular camps. And so then like a barrier to understanding the complexity of everything that we do and see is is by is by hitching your wagon or are hitching too too strongly to any given kind of clinical wagon, if you will, and not being open to the broader domains. I suppose it kind of brings us full circle a little bit with some of the conversation, but being being willing to go, well, maybe it's not all about the discs, even though you know I've kind of thought about it this way for so long. Being open to maybe delving into some psychology, maybe delving into some sociology, maybe you know understanding the kind of societal barriers and biases that have led that person to the healthcare decisions and healthcare outcomes they've been in rather than it being about their discs or even considering that, you know, the circumstances they find themselves have been led by their own kind of conscious choices rather than the environment they find themselves in, for example. So I think, I think, I, I think there's two things. I think there's experience and guidance and kind of, you know, mentorship that, that comes over time. But I also think there's an openness to not to explore outside of your kind of small clinical niche or whatever kind of um, uh, camp that you kind of subscribe to, because I think I think that's a big. Oh, certainly, I see that as a big barrier to um, if you're if you're close to learning and close to embracing um, other areas, then then acknowledging the uncertainty and, and, and complexity is going to be a problem. There's a Great question that uh, often comes up in in mentoring sessions for clinicians that I work with, which is reflecting on our own identity. And I think you touched on some great points there. And um, having some conversations with people like yourself is it's always refreshing and enlightening. And I always leave learning not only uh, something new, but something new about myself. And one of the the lenses that we kind of touched on in previous conversations has been um, privilege, intersectionality, and awareness of our own biases. And, and um, that helps to then reflect on who we are and what our role is as a clinician. Um, so I've got two kind of open-ended questions to, to round off for you, Merv. One is, what do you see as your, your role as a clinician, as a healthcare professional, when working with um, a chronic pain patient or a elite athlete getting back into the, the sporting field. Um, and then the second part is success. H how do you define success? 
as a clinician? Yeah, that's that's a really um, there are two really interesting questions. Um, um, I might I might start with the second one first, if I may. Success success is interesting. You know, um, there was a time there was a time when I would have thought like being pain free and um, um, you know, um, and, and also maybe naively thinking, well, I'm going to teach this person so much about pain. They're going to also going to become pain immune and they're going to know a lot about pain. And if I give them a pain exam, they'd score really highly, you know, um, type of thing. But then via the conversation we've already had, I've kind of said like, you know, I, I asked them kind of what, what do you think worked? What do you think didn't work? You know, what was the biggest thing for you? Uh, and it's, it's, it's firstly, never a conversation. It's, it, it's, it's always something experiential, but, but it's always, it's almost always something I, I would never have picked. And so I think that what we define by success and what the patient defines as success is, is are, are different. And, and I subscribe to this um, kind of concept of anti-fragility, whereby I kind of, um, I, I feel that, and, and, and I'd always like for patients to be uh, maybe I should rewind it and explain what that is. And so, um, so look, fragile, right? If I ask people what, what's something that's fragile, let's say like a, a wine glass or something, you drop on the ground, there's a shock, it smashes. Think, well, what's the opposite of fragile? People would say kind of uh, strong or robust. You go, well, what's that? Like a piece of wood or a rock or something, you drop it on the ground, it's not going to break. So I'm saying, yeah, it's not going to break, but it's no better for the shock. Right? It's not improved because of the shock. It's just survived it. And I don't want my patients to just merely survive uh, kind of rehab, if you will. I want them to absorb the shock of rehab and be better for that. And so for me, and it's quite a nondescript as well as kind of nebulous thing to, to grasp, but but I look for signs of anti-fragility. And so uh, things like people who struggled to handle flare-ups in the past, now managing them independently. That's a great success where you know, they might not be pain-free. They might never be fully pain-free, but I've accepted that that alone. So today, even I got a, as I said, you, I got an email from a patient who said, yeah, I had a little setback, but I'm back and I'm good to go, right? Those are the things I look for. And it's interesting for me, you know, uh, and you've probably seen me give some of these examples in teaching, you know, I'll often get, because a lot of my patients are, are, are dotted around the world, I'll get videos of their exercises. And they'll send me all oh, look at my progress, you know, and they're they're thinking about the the kilos and pounds or the reps and sets, and, and that's all really important and that's great. But often I'm looking for things like you know they didn't need to use the spotting arms or things like that that shows they weren't so insecure or you know doing the movements, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, so so there are there are other markers and other metrics for sure, and and, and I don't think necessarily whilst you try to align. Uh, with your patient and you're, you're kind of helping guide them and that kind of part asks, answers some of the first question. You, you, you're trying to guide them towards their individual goal. What I have shot for in many years, over the last number of years, is trying to, um, let's say someone said, look, I want to run again. I'm like, okay, great. Well, if I could magic you being able to run right now, what would you do? Oh, I'd go and meet my friends on Saturday to do a park run. I'm like, ah, oh, okay. So we're going to run with your friends, okay? So I think what's really important for a lot of people with pain, or certainly my experience, is it shrinks their world, right? And it shrinks the world socially and, and personally. And so for me, I, you know, it's not about getting them, it used to be about getting them running, but now it's so much more about them being who they were, okay? Engaging with their world and being who they were. And so often from a physical point of view, uh, you know, and performance point of view, I, I want them to be better than they were previously. So I'll get them on their 5K park run, but I'm like, maybe we should think about a half marathon. 
right? And so we try and nudge that needle in terms of performance further. But most importantly, in, you know, kind of embed that in their world. So make it part of not just their routine, but their social routine. So who they do it with and reconnect with their world. I think that's that's become more important for me these days that, you know, like Daniel, who were you? You know what I mean? Prior to pain being this thing in your life, like who were you? What have you lost? Okay, well, what of that can we kind of move you back towards? Uh, as much as it being about being at a four out of 10 or a three out of 10 or kind of running again. It's about the 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 people or the environments in which they actually perform that task. And so that that's uh, become, uh, and again, that's kind of my, I suppose that leaning of kind of predictive processing kind of um, shining through and then kind of like kind of deeply personal nature. So so success is probably different for everyone. If, if you try and align it with their patients, but I, I, I look for signs of anti-fragility. I look for signs that the person has become the person they were before um or, or or you know in that direction and that entails not just doing an activity not just their pain levels but it entails the environment they do it in the people they do it with and the joy they seek from doing it uh, and that's um yeah that, that that's what kind of is success for me um and um, and then so the first question i suppose then becomes well what's my job well, i suppose my or my how do i define my role uh, like I don't know, maybe some kind of a coach or a guide that helps them on that journey. Uh, I used to describe myself as being a project manager. You know, I actually see myself being a project manager, perhaps uh, because, like, I can't magic your pain away with any one thing I do. Um, you know, I'm not going to just like I, I can't just like I don't know push your disc back in and make your pain go away. Um, but I can help you navigate this journey in terms of understanding pain, its meaningfulness, so help guide the journey of experiential learning. Um, but also help and encourage the person to uh, and, and give them the capacity to engage with their world again. Um, and that the reason why project managers that becomes the project, right? Like the, the project is helping them be who they were again, engage that world. And, and my job is to try and put a lot of the pieces together, which often involves reaching out to other clinicians from other disciplines and and and, and seeking out all of the different resources we need to do that in conjunction with the person. Um, but maybe I'm a researcher, right? Because because it's an N equals one experiment, Daniel, right? And so maybe I'm just hypothesis hypothesis testing with the person's consent constantly. And so uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's all those things. Uh, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say kind of uh, yeah, like a, a, a probably a coach or a guide on that journey is probably if I had to label it. Um, I, I think that's a uh, if I could achieve that in any way, well, I'd be very happy at the end of the day. That's awesome. It's a curious, humble uh, guide coach that makes it about the the star player and gets them back into their community and who they are as a as a human, as a person within their society, and getting them back to all the 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 joy that they perhaps were missing out on pre pre injury or pre onset of pain as much as possible within their constraints. I think that's awesome. It's making it about the, not only them, but also your interaction as well and your relationship and your um, uh, support throughout that journey. Yeah, um, but but I mean, the, the, look, I agree, but I think it's funny actually because um, you might have heard this in the advanced course with BA. He talks about trying to make his athletes not even need him anymore. And and and, and I think when we've, when we've done a really good job as clinicians where 
we're very, very much in, you know, should place ourselves in the periphery. You know, and I think that's, it's not about you. It's not about you being the smartest person in the room. It's not about you intervening. It's not about you. It's about that person. And so you want to make them. Uh, and that's why I'm so happy when I see patients who, who would have struggled previously with flare-ups kind of managing them independently. And it, it's funny, I, I, it's something that's come up with me recently is, and it kind of sits on the other side of flare-up actually, uh, on the other side of the spectrum. I've had a couple of patients recently who, uh, I can think of three or four examples recently where um, they've, if you if you will, they've gone off piste. We, we've been working, you know, they maybe had surgery and, and they were saying, hey, we're, we're going to get some running. We're going to do this stuff before we start running or whatever else. They're like, I was feeling great, so I just went out for a run. And like, you've got a choice there, right? You can be like, hey, I'm Daniel. I said not to run. I'm the boss. What are you doing? You're early. Or like, how did it feel? They're like, well, it didn't hurt. I'm like, no, 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 no. How did it feel? Felt great. I love being out there. It was awesome. It's like, okay. Well, great. Right. So you can chastise the person for going off piste. I mean, of course, there's times when it's negligent. You know, you know, I, I um, as someone who, when I was younger, I, I had a, a fractured hand and I, I cut the cast off my hand to play a, a rugby game. I, I wouldn't recommend that. Right. Um, and so that's like, you know, of course, there's things that they're negligent and silly. Uh, and of course, that's not okay. But so often, how do we know where the line is for the person to start running or not? And then we go put the brakes on them and say, oh, you shouldn't have done that because I wanted us to do this first or that first. They did it. They 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 didn't just survive it. And this is the key thing. They're saying it was great. It was awesome. I want to do more. They're it was an anti-fragile experience for them. Right. And so I think I think it's really important is that we don't chastise that we kind of embrace that and go, that's awesome. How do we actually integrate that now into where we're at? It's it's I've got to update my model as a clinician, right? Not impose, not impose my model on you and say, no, Daniel, I'm gonna stop you. We, you know, I've got to update my model and go, okay, that's cool. Like I've actually learned some useful information. I didn't think they'd be ready. They did it, they loved it, they they were great. So Let's integrate this into what we're doing. Let's fast forward my model and update my model a little bit here. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think I think you know, you know, we 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 got to place ourselves in the periphery. I think that's really important. Yep, and it's uh, it's so fascinating. I'm, I'm, as you're speaking, I'm reflecting on how my own definitions of success had definitely changed over the years, where I wanted to be the the magician that knew exactly how to give a perfect cue to an athlete and get them pain-free in, you know, a session. And now I'm very much more leaning towards what's the person that can even have the, the interaction skills to decenter themselves, even when the, that person wants that fix. I think that's, that's the next level where we can um, really make it about them. And that's, that takes a lot of skill. To, to be able to do that when perhaps there is that demand for a quick fix or a, sure. a magic solution. Sure. But uh, yeah, but it's interesting because ultimately the patient is all the hard work. Like you, you, you can't be center stage because like you're saying, Hey, go and try this or try this thing. But the person has to go and try it and they have to experience it. They have to reflect on it and see, you know, all they do all that hard work. You're not center stage, man. Um, and I think that's, yeah, look, and I, like, I so agree. I can, I can totally, um, empathize what you're saying. The idea that of, of, of being the, the, the magician who's gonna, you know, fix them. So in, in, like in so many ways, I, you know, I, I, you know, 
as a younger clinician, I was probably a bit like, gosh, I'm struggling, I'm drowning here. I'm not really helping people the way I want to. I'm, I'm not able to fix them so well uh, as I thought I would. I must be rubbish, you know, and internalizing that kind of pressure because I can't be that person. And so I went to, to do my postgrad, which, you know, uh, was in some ways to kind of, you know, teach me how to fix, to be that fixer, which in some ways taught me about the complexities and how that's not really what it is, right? And so um, it's not it's not the job, it's not the role, it's not how this works. Um, and, and it was a big stepping stone forward in, 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 in that journey. So the irony was intending to become that person and the journey to become that person was what opened me to the fact that you're never going to be that person because that's not how it works. Um, so I don't know if that reflects at all your experience with it. Yeah, there, there's definitely that almost that loss of what we thought we were going to become or what a quote unquote good successful clinician, what we've kind of been taught as that role model. And then we reflect on actually we're just going the wrong direction and we can have so much uh, intrinsic enjoyment, satisfaction, rewards from being that coach. It's so much more fulfilling to work with a human and make it about them. Yeah. Look, I think that, I think there's immense hope. I don't I don't know obviously um in the EP world, but you know, here um uh, you know, being involved in undergraduate education, we we just had our, our fourth years as they they finish, they do their um what we call complex cases. They they give a presentation on a complex case and um they talk through the evidence base and their approach and various different things. And and there were some students in my group who who basically you know, outlined a process and a journey they went with with these patients with kind of long-standing and complex pain um, that I'd have been proud of if, if I if I pulled that out of the bag myself. I would have been I would have left the day the clinic the clinic that day gone. Gosh, got, you know, I I think I've done some good here, or I hope at least, you know. And so I, I think there is hope. I think I I hope we are moving towards um uh you know professionals and clinicians who who can embrace that uncertainty in the clinical world um, maybe earlier than I did. Uh, and, and I hope so. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, our, all of our schools are probably full of um, well-meaning clinicians who are hoping and educators who are hoping to let the next group coming through learn from our mistakes. So hopefully their journey to that is, is accelerated. Um, and, and hopefully they, go into working environments that allows that kind of curiosity and openness and uh, reflection on practice to be kind of perpetuated rather than um, environments that are a barrier uh, barrier to that. There's so much hope and potential. And I think that there's change coming. If, if we were to, to finish off with for the new grads and the newer clinicians uh, listening, final pieces of advice or reflecting on I love that point of educators um, teaching and providing that space to number one be vulnerable about our own mistakes so that our students don't have to go through the same uh, cycles that, that we went through what, what what's a piece of advice for for newer clinicians that you often give perhaps to your new grads yeah, it's a really it's a really good question. You know, it's funny, and I I lean on um so like I I I teach in our evidence based practice kind of unit, if you will, and it's funny, 
you know, sometimes when I teach this stuff or I'm teaching to clinicians as well as to students. Um, you can you can go through the evidence on a particular topic, for example, let's just say I don't know injury prevention and runners, and you can basically go through and go pretty much every large RCT has, and they've all got biases, and that's fine, has shown that we can't really prevent injury in runners, or we don't know how to effectively. Um, across you know the 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 mean response in these trials, and um, you know it's funny you can spend um an hour going through that content and it will be, can be pretty deflating because people are like, whoa, what do you mean the exercise didn't help? What do you mean stretching didn't help? What do you mean warm-ups didn't help? What do you mean in this group flattening the trajectory of, of progression week to week didn't help? You know, all these things, sort of footwear, you know, that, that was a bit more conflicting actually, but but nonetheless, modest at best outcomes, if you will, um, and, and lots of trials doing very little. Um, you know, then clinicians can be sit, sit there and go, well, what do I do with this? Nothing works. What, what am I supposed to do? And actually, um, something I've observed in younger clinicians, and, and, like, and, the, and, and I've experienced it, and I kind of my heart have experienced it also, is that um, is that beating yourself up. You know, I used to, like, oh, gosh, I did everything right. I read all the papers. I did everything right. You know, I did what it says in the books, and this person still got hurt, or they didn't get better. And so I internalize and beat myself up and, you know, actually going through all of that information, all that knowledge, all that um, evidence on understanding, like I say, injury prevention in that circumstance, for example, demonstrates there's a whole lot about this you can't control. So embracing that complexity. It's not that you're blasé about it and go, well, that means I can just do whatever I want because nothing will happen or nothing will matter. But recognizing that, you know, pain and injury are completely multifactorial beasts and they're not even the same thing. And and so thinking that you're going to resolve that, treat that, prevent that in some way with one single uh, multi-dimensional factor like getting the person strong or putting a heel raise in their shoe, for example, you know, understanding that, that understanding that that's not how it works and it's not as simple as that, and you could have done everything right and it still doesn't go your way. Um, that for me, that information is actually powerful. It's liberating. So it led me to take the pressure off myself rather than beating myself up, right? And so I think that's really important. It's the same, Daniel, right? We've had this chat about exercise and pain, right? And that if you look at the RCTs, you look at the RCTs and then you go up to the meta-analyses on, on exercise for pain, you know, exercise for low back pain, really like pretty modest outcomes, no one form being much better than 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 the others. And, uh, you know, you know, so, you know, Outcomes are pretty modest, not much better than any other kinds of treatments. Um, let the patient choose what they want to do because it doesn't really matter if they do Pilates or do this or do that because the outcomes are kind of the same. You know, um, there's a question stop toward that topic, but the lacking any nuance of interpretation within it, of course. But 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 then you kind of go, gosh, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, but I think there's hope because there are frameworks out there and there are there's one of the problems we've got with exercise is recognizing that it's being done in such a reductionist way, excuse me, in such a reductionist way that we don't know what the therapeutic target we're shooting for is most of the time. There's no agreement about that. It's just kind of this sense exercise is good. Let's do exercise then, right? Um, but there are emerging frameworks that actually make sense. And, 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 and you know, so there, and, and, and if you look, you know, 
from my end, actually, the, the Resolve trial that was just published in in, uh, in JAMA, so that was led by Matthew Bagg, who's a, um, a, a physio who actually trained at University of Amsterdam here, he's in West Australia here, and and, and um, um, James McCauley was, was second author, I think Ben Wan was the last author, Tasha Stanton, Martin Raby, Laura, all these kind of pain, you know, Dumbledore's on it, right? And, and and a magnificent team, you know, with huge NHMRC funding. And they did a big randomized control trial and like, you know, and it's tightly done conservative treatment, randomized control trial I've seen for pretty much any uh, pain condition, certainly for low back pain. Okay, so it was magnificent. And they um they looked at kind of graded sensory motor training uh, and, and it was compared against a highly credible sham. And uh, over, uh, I think it was about uh, ten or twelve weeks worth of training of 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 of, of uh, intervention, and and so for pain, which is the primary outcome, they had a, a difference of a point estimate difference of one between the two groups, and the ninety five percent confidence that will span 0.5 up to one point five. And so you kind of go, well, cool. What does that mean? Well, it means actually, for the first time ever, there's been a large, really tightly done conservative treatment, randomized control trial in people with persisting low back pain that showed a signal. Now, the meaningfulness of that signal, like, you know, interpreting the smallest worthwhile effect for that patient group when compared to a highly credible sham, I actually, I, I really don't know. I, but there's a signal, there's something that suggests of this, there's something in this that may be beneficial for people. And it may actually stand out as a treatment that we, you know, can be built further on, et cetera. Okay. And and it's it's not based on pushing, you know, discs back in, et cetera, et cetera. What they did with people is they did help them kind of they talked about pain and reflect on the meaningfulness of pain and various different things. They did some playing around with sensory information. So they were doing graphesthesia, so drawing on the person's back and having the person kind of figure out what the shapes were and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, playing with blunt versus sharp detection, localizing points that are being pressed on their back, watching videos of people moving and then imagining doing those movements themselves, building up to doing those movements themselves, et cetera, right? So it's a very stepwise approach. And of course, things that have to be very kind of controlled in a, in a, and, and then also uniform, you know, in a randomized controlled trial. But what it recognizes is for me, and, and again, leaning on that, my bias towards predictive processing, which suggests that, you know, doing some stuff that might influence a person's understanding of their pain and the kind of conscious and hopefully non-conscious downward predictions in their system and playing around with the weighting of sensory information in a group of patients who are unlikely to get better on their own uh, when compared to a credible, highly credible sham, there was an improvement. And, and an improvement bigger than what we see in most trials, actually, but, what, the, but the true meaningfulness of that is hard to interpret. But there's hope in that. Like I actually think genuinely, like if we if we go down this line, there is some hope in this that we actually can make a difference. We there's some evidence there that suggests we can make a difference. We need to align with that with um, our own kind of frameworks for practice, and we need to align that, of course, with patient the patient who's in front of us, etc. But we, you know, as a message for um, young clinicians, I suppose there's two things that I want to get back to here. Is one that you'll hear a lot of stuff and see a lot of evidence to suggest nothing works. And, and that actually, a lot of that evidence is actually correct, right? Lots of things that we've tried haven't worked and that's cool. And so when you try and it doesn't work, don't beat yourself up because 
there's things that you can't control. And the pain is an injury or multifactorial beast that we're unlikely to treat and and, and and prevent, you know, with one single factor. So it's not all on you. Okay. That's the first thing. I think that shortens careers for clinicians. That pressure, that sense of failing themselves and their patients because they haven't been able to be the person with the kind of magic bullet every time. And then the second thing is actually, I think there are emerging frameworks for understanding and treating pain, which show great promise, I think. And I, I so I think that the 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 role that we play and the benefit we will we we can uh serve uh, people with persisting pain i think is is only improving if we align with those contemporary models and so i think that there's um um i think there's a bright future i love that it's acknowledging the the multitude of factors that are outside of our control we've touched on social determinants of healthcare whilst also giving some hope that with emerging evidence and keeping up to date and being open and flexible on uh, our own role as coaches, as guys, that we can definitely make a huge difference. And um, the, the nihilistic viewpoint of nothing matters or, you know, nothing works, things will work for individuals and we can definitely make a huge difference in an individual's life. We might not be able to help every single person, but we can definitely make a difference. Yeah, sure. And I think that's where evidence-based practice actually comes into play there. Like, you know, it, it, you just said w w things will work for certain people, not because I'm randomly shotgunning it, but because I have, uh, you know, I'm open to understanding that person and seeing what that person wants, needs, the direction they need to go, and then experimenting, benevolently experimenting um, along those lines and trying things that kind of fit with that model and align with where the evidence is. I, I just think that's the best we can possibly do. I, I really don't see how we could do any better than that. Um, so, yeah, that's my feeling. Merv, mate, I could talk for days on this. I've loved this discussion and the, the topics and um, definitely some huge value for, for listeners. And I highly recommend for the listeners to check out your courses. So any course updates for next year and hopefully coming across to the, the East Coast and yeah my side yeah. of the the country you say yeah well thank you very much for coming to my side of the country twice of course that's 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 certainly greatly appreciated I highly uh, recommend the course perhaps not the red eye flight just a, yeah. a caveat to that one yeah and i'm not i'm not i'm not responsible for the flight schedule but uh yeah no i i hear you um but look so so what have i got in, in um Next course I'm running and last course in Australia for the year is in November. I'm running an SNC uh, Standard Conditioning for Physios uh, course in November. And that's 19th and 20th of November here in Perth at Western Australia Institute of Sport. Then I'm off to um, do some teaching in, in, in Reykjavik. I'm running an SNC for Physio course in Reykjavik. And then I'm off to Stavanger in Norway to run a my Pain on Stuck course, which you attended. Um, and and with it with an extra day so a three-day course so two days of pain unstuck and one day of snc for physios so the pain unstuck course is all about kind of seeing pain through a predictive processing lens and how we understand our patients that way and a framework to guide this n equals one experiment i speak about a framework to guide that process in clinic um and then um the snc for physios course is all about then demystifying gym-based rehab and how that kind of then um kind of making patients feel safe and comfortable in the gym and then for us as clinicians updating our knowledge competency and skills in prescribing uh gym-based rehab 
in 2023, mate, I, my calendar is pretty darn full um, of courses, but uh, it, a lot of them are overseas. But I have in, I'm doing my Pain and Stuck course in Perth next uh, next June, I believe. Yeah, and I'm in uh, I'm in Port Lincoln uh, doing an SSC for physio course, Port Lincoln, South Australia in, in March. And I'm going to be on the East Coast as well. I'm just uh, finalizing venues and dates. So I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted. I might post some stuff up on, on the Knowledge Exchange if that's cool. Mate, you are a busy man. I <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to have that that schedule of yours, but you're doing some great work and really, really appreciate it. One day we'll, we'll be able to clone you and have more of you so we can oh, have you do I, more. I don't more. know if that's a good thing in any way for the world, but look, Diane, I really appreciate your time and I've really enjoyed the conversations we've had and, and the chats we've had, mate. And um, yeah, look, really appreciate you um, coming on the courses. I'm glad they've been of value to you and and, 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 and clinically, et cetera. And so... Um, yeah, happy to happy to chat anytime, mate. Happy to discuss any of these things. Appreciate it, Merv. Thank you so much. And until next time. Take care.